With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to the fourth and final hour of the Weekends with Jason Olborn show here on TNT Radio. I hope you've been enjoying the diverse range of conversation that we've had today on the show. And it continues in this hour because up next I have got one of the superstars of the truther or freedom movement, whichever way you want to do it. But far bigger than that, Tony Nicolick is General Manager of AFL Solicitors. He's a highly accomplished lawyer and criminologist with a great passion for learning about law and providing efficient and effective legal aid to clients to achieve favourable outcomes. He's committed to social justice. He consistently offers pro bono legal work and devotes a portion of his time to disadvantaged persons, aiming to make a positive difference in their lives whilst contributing to the betterment of society. He also has a background in both criminology and whistleblower protections. Tony Nicolick. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jase. Really appreciate it, Tony. And you know, um, if we go back a little bit in time, when we set up, my wife and I, a little group uh, that was uh, on Facebook, it was a group called A Million Mums for Informed Consent. Mm. We never realised that we got such a big kick along. And then it turned out that we'd received some um, some praise and I think it was a share or something going on along from AFL solicitors, Tony. And I wonder if that was the very first time that our paths actually crossed. I, I think it may have been because I, I remember becoming um, distinctly aware of that movement. Um, as you know, when, when I first started cutting through Telegram was one of the only ways we could get through. Um, although censorship hadn't really taken its hold, it it, it was starting to take an effect um, on other platforms and we could see what was happening in the USA, especially with Donald Trump. And then they slowly started to whittle that down and it started to find its way into Australia. And um, But I, I certainly found that. And I was setting up all these other little groups like the miners and um, little things like that. And then they've all got their own mind now they've all sort of moved on in their own way and a lot of them uh, uh, are still there but in, in terms of the million mums I thought that was a really good one the initiative was fantastic and I just thought yeah you know what this needs to be tapped into and it's amazing how uh, when when a, a positive reference is made and people got aboard very quickly we grew to about 20,000 people on on Facebook in no time at all and we kept it going and were constantly harassed by uh, by Facebook and eventually taken down there and it got uh, rebuilt as two million mums just to sort of shove it up the nose. But uh, it was never the same because you, you sort of jumped that ship. But interesting what was happening there that, of course, it was built up because it was about educating about the right to informed consent because we could see the writing on the wall that um, coercion was a big part of what was going on and and, and that forms part of the basis of today's conversation. Uh, but it was, it was um, uh, a bit more than that too because what happened with a million mums is that there was a huge... Uh, interest in homeschooling and, uh, and and of course where I'm based in um, the Hunter region of New South Wales, we have one of the largest homeschooling populations in the country. My, uh, my three youngest uh, all, all were homeschooled my eldest is now out of the school system, going through TAFE, looking at uh, getting into a trade and 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 really thriving. He, he wasn't doing too well at school. And my youngest two are about a year ahead each 
in the school program and absolutely love it, would never change it. And we meet more and more people every day that go down that pathway. So you're right. It's interesting how, how things start, but how also they evolve. And evolve is, is part of the, what we're going to start with this conversation today is that there we go from what, three years ago and, and, and informing parents of, of their rights and to be educated. And now we're moving into a COVID inquiry here in Australia. And I wanted to get your perspective on, uh, on, on first of all, what you think. If we go into it, um, uh, the COVID inquiry is to be conducted by a written submission by three carefully selected, how's this, three carefully selected white women, no less. How's that for diversity? So you've got Robin Cruck, um, who was previously Head Rolls' Director General of the New South Wales Department of Health. She's the Secretary of the Commonwealth Department of Environment, Water, Heritage and the Arts and CEO of the National Mental Health Co Commission. You've got Professor Catherine Bennett, a Deakin uh, University's current chair in epidemiology, the University of Melbourne's former associate professor in epidemiology and director of population health practice. Professor Bennett also held senior positions in New South Wales and Victorian state governments. And Dr. Angela Jackson, who's a health economist with extensive experience in economics and government, including through her current role as lead economist for impact economics and policy. She was a member of the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee and is national chair of the Women in Economics Network and previously held as a board member of the chair of the Finance Committee at the Royal Melbourne Hospital from 2015 to 2021. Tony, what is your opinion of this COVID inquiry and the selection of these three panellists? I'll look at the inquiry first. I think any inquiry looking at anything is always welcome. There's always an optimistic view. I've certainly got an optimistic view. However, given the last three years and the way a number of issues have been treated through society, um, especially, you know, and I'm sure we may get to it, you know, such as lockdowns, adverse events, how they've been managed, obviously statistics and the trajectory of those statistics. Any inquiries welcome. I think we need to always hold that positive view as to where it may head. But given the way things have headed, uh, a lot of people are expressing a lot of scepticism with respect to how it may pan out. There's a lot of suspicion, obviously. There's a lot of mistrust, not not only in government but with experts or so-called experts because, as you know, Jason, throughout the pandemic, they were rolling them out 11 a.m. or 10 a.m., depending on where you were, and they were giving these statistics, and these statistics were alarming and they were hyper, hyper real in the sense where there was all this sensationalism, you know, person dies aged 81 and very tragic these these statistics were very tragic but I think and as I've raised in my submission because I did a submission um, and rushed it in yesterday is now that we've got people suspected to be dying from the vaccine or injured from there isn't a peep but if someone had a sniffle it was a case we've got 30,000 cases or whatever it may be mm. and I thought if we're genuinely going to go down that track of an inquiry, it needs to be a full, thorough, full and frank inquiry without fear or favour. I have serious concerns about how it may be conducted, and I'll say that in just a moment. Um, and one of those concerns, I think you touched on some of the panel members there. Um, I did have um, uh, an inquiry with Catherine Bennett, who is the second. She's an epidemiologist, highly respected um, very, very high class in her field, and I think she's eminently qualified in what she does. But early on in the pandemic, and no one would know this, but I have an email exchange with her in a particular case where I actually indicate to Catherine Bennett that just because I have experts on cases, 
we shouldn't be calling them anti-vaxxers. Mm. Now, that's an exclusive for you right there. Obviously, I've put it in my submission. I'm not hiding anything. I've got the email. Um, and my concern is if we are going to have a full, frank, independent inquiry, then my concern is if we have an independent member indicating that experts that may be used in cases, and the case I refer to here is the Kassam case, and any experts speaking against the vaccine or the ma ma mandated vaccine, well, I think what we needed to do is say, well, should we, referring to them as anti-vaxxers? Well, no. Um, I actually think in that, in that sense, we have a real fear here that it's actually going to go down a pathway where we're not really going to get objectivity. And it's almost as though it's a fait accompli or, you know, they've already got their sights set on where we want to head. It's more going to be around um, how do we prepare and lock down harder in the future or do we lock down harder in the future or for how long do we lock down? Whereas my personal view, Jason, is don't lock down at all, mm. okay? There was no need to because the evidence I put into my submission and it's there, now it's up, it's... I uploaded it. Jaya Bhattacharya said 99.5% of the uh, people, so 99, sorry, 99.5% of the people will survive. Um, children are almost at nil. So mm, mm. We, we have to really understand what the evidence is that we'll be relying on. Now they talk about evidence, but what, what evidence are we talking about? Are we talking about the evidence that was promulgated and pushed? through society, or are we talking about evidence that came from external experts as well? Because as you may know, Jason, a lot of Australia locked down because we said this is what the, the rest of the world was doing. Yes. Okay. But when experts from all over the world were coming, well, it's not really that bad. Well, they started to be censored and called anti-vaxxers and, you know, they, they weren't. A lot, of, a lot of the experts, as a matter of fact, that we were actually um, talking to and bringing into court cases were actually vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it was beggar's belief as to how that could happen. And we're also seeing, you know, people who are vaccine injured now being labelled anti-vaxxers. So, it, Jason, there's a long way to go. Whether this inquiry actually addresses the points we need to or whether it doesn't is another thing. And the fact that they're, well, they're saying it's broad, but it's not. And hopefully we, we chat about that because it was a national plan that encompassed all the states and by virtue of a national cabinet that has been heavily criticised because it was unconstitutionally made up. Just because you call something a national cabinet doesn't mean it is a national cabinet. And the very fact that you put all these premiers together into one room and they're subservient to the Commonwealth, well, doesn't that tell you there's a national plan and that national plan is a joint scheme and that joint scheme may actually be the part of the breach of the Section 50 5123A of the Constitution. So these are the sorts of things we need to address. There is just so much uh, to do with this particular COVID inquiry. And like you said, laying it out there that um, that you can prejudice an inquiry by 
naming or, 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 or falsely naming in the case of an anti-vax, that whole idea really bugs me. The idea that a vaccine, this, this branch of medicine, of science, this subpart, this preventative medicine by definition, which never prevented anything with the COVID vaccine, just because you use the V word means that society has now accepted that we never dare criticise it or the criticiser will be will be labelled as an anti-vaxxer so that they can be dismissed from society. It's, it's absolutely abhorrent that this would be a case with an investigation that you wouldn't leave any stone unturned. But here's one, the big V, and they're going to ignore it and they're going to run a mile, just as the idea of the, uh, the, the, the state leaders also being ignored in the inquiry. I mean, it, it tells you at the outset that they're hard to trust these people. And whilst you said that it's uh, you must always be uh, go in with a positive outlook on what's going on, it's just that we've been down these pathways so many times that we feel like that um, we're, we're headed to yet another conclusion that doesn't necessarily get to, to the bottom of what's going on. When you see something like that uh, in, in an investigation, is it prejudiced when you've got an attitude that that, that um, this professor can come out and, and, and call people anti-vaxxers just because they have a, a different opinion? Well, that was really early on in the piece too when we were talking about experts. So I would have thought there was some, you know, professional collegiality in, in the sense of, you know, how do we talk about our colleagues? Um, um, I don't think, and let me just be very clear, I don't think she was being derogatory or anything like, you know, personally attacking this person from a personal level, and I'm certainly not doing that. All I'm articulating here is the fact that what we have here is we had a statement that pretty well put your objective view or subjective view on something, now you're purporting to be independent three years later. I can't see how that's going to work out. I think action needs to be taken there. I think the Albanese government needs to address that, and I think it needs to be addressed prior to it going forward because if there's going to be any sense of objectivity, it needs to come from the start. And remember, it's not about justice being done or an inquiry being. It's the perception of it being done objectively, okay? Mm -hmm. And if that's occurring, one of my biggest concerns is if you're saying that at the start, then I don't know how it's progressed, but there were a lot of media interviews throughout the pandemic where uh, Professor Bennett was there, and I'm sure, don't get me wrong, I'm sure, you know, survival and the people's health was utmost uh, in in the framework of thinking and, you know, how we're going to protect the community and, and, and health outcomes. But having said those sorts of things, um, I think is something that, needs to be sort of investigated a little bit further in the sense of, well, how do we move forward? And if there's going to be any confidence in this inquiry, well, we need to make sure that the people in there are open-minded, okay? They need to be open-minded, especially when we got some of the issues that as, you're, as you've been articulating. So we really need to come back and, and, and make sure it's objective. Yeah, look, well said. What we'd like to do is uh, we're going to head to a break shortly. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to talk to Tony a little bit more about his submission to the COVID inquiry, because I could imagine there will be many, many people and organisations that have made submissions. And clearly there will be a path or, uh, or, or a process of different people bringing up different ideas and whether or not all of these need to be investigated or whether or not Tony thinks that um, the most popular only or even the ones that are the ones that they want to investigate. This will be a very interesting comparison, and one wonders if this will turn around and bite them where it hurts. In the meantime, we will take that break. You are watching Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. 
TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit um, because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, Nonprofits are on the front lines, ready to serve. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed, and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing, nurturing, rescuing, honoring, protecting, caring, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes, across all missions, has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. So many people who had no history of heart illnesses have got it now, or blood clotting after the COVID-19 vaccination. Punish those who hurt people with COVID madness. Lighting the fuse for freedom. TNT Radio. Welcome back to the Weekends with Jason Olborn show, and that is exactly what we are doing in this hour even with AFL solicitors Tony Nicolick. Tony, when... Um, we talked about before the break about the COVID inquiry. You've now made a submission. Uh, can you explain what was involved in that submission and what it was that you decided to target? A few things. I, I actually got noticed that it was out pretty late. Um, I've usually got my finger on the pulse on a lot of things, but I'm very busy as well. So I thought, you know, you've got to throw your hat in the ring here and, and at least put, put your name down. Now, having looked at it a little bit further, I ended up working out, well, it's got three-page limit and five annexure limit. So, and those annexures couldn't go over ten megabytes. Um, but if you had a little bit more, you could actually email them. So they were pretty flexible about things. But there was a, an explicit three-page limit. And I thought to myself, well, here we have uh, supposedly Australia's worst pandemic, and everyone's being restricted to three pages. Now you can accept the fact that. You know, I'm sure the panel doesn't want to sit there and read for the next four years because people may put in, you know, a hundred page or a two hundred page submission. But in it, in an environment upon which we lived, where I've actually represented clients where children were pepper sprayed by police for not wearing a mask. Okay, we won those cases. Um, we had lockdowns. We ran a case, uh, a tarvay versus the federal and state governments, and that was to open up places of worship, okay, in a lockdown. Um, 
and the circumstances behind that were largely humanitarian. It had nothing to do with agitating against the government. And one of the issues, and it goes beyond a lot of people, is the fact that uh, a, a pastor from Western Sydney got together with some people from the eastern side in the Jewish community and they were fed up with being locked down. And one of the issues that was being raised was the inconsistency of the orders that were coming down from state and federal governments and no one knew what was happening. And so really what was what we were saying was pastors, rabbis, imams, you know, sheiks, all these people, they serve especially in times of need. They serve the community in ways that the government cannot attend to and essentially they take care of their flock. And in these circumstances, what we had, we had... Uh, priests and pastors and rabbis wanting to get out to their flock. They were actually wanting to deliver food. They knew who had mental health issues. They knew where the elderly were. They mm. knew how to get to these people, but they weren't allowed to. And so they put their, their their faith on their sleeve and they said, well, we're going to take on the government, not because they wanted to. They did not want to. And it's, and it's very well documented because exemptions were sought. What was really unfortunate, and look, Although the case did not succeed, a day or two later, Gladys Berejiklian came out and actually said, in a week or two, we're going to open up all the places of worship. What were some of the issues that were raised? Well, it, and it's in my submission, you could go to a brothel, but you couldn't go to church. Yeah. You could go and buy alcohol at stores, but you couldn't go to your place of worship. You could walk around and you can do all sorts of stuff, you can go in and have your 1.5, but you couldn't, 1.5 metres, sorry, but you could not go and pray or play a sermon to uh, your 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 religion. And that was something that really hit home for a lot of people. Now, a lot of people don't realise a week or two later, all the churches and places of worship were open. Although it's unsuccessful in name only, it actually succeeded. Now, they were some of the contradictions of the lockdowns. Uh, we obviously represented people who had fines as well. Well, why are we getting fines? Because they're engaging in political speech over something they know isn't consistent with the evidence that's happening. All we had was experts rolling out day by day saying, oh, it's deadly. And Well, it was for some people, but not for everyone. And you can read my Brad Hazard letter of 7 July 2021, which put that forward from the start. We also laid out issues with respect to alternative treatments. Well, again, in my submission, we look at uh, the declaration of biosecurity, uh, the human um, biosecurity emergency pandemic potential that was attached to the Biosecurity Act. Now, in that, and it was it was it was a cunning way of doing things because. What they said was essentially that the human um, coronavirus had a pandemic potential. Well, it did have a pandemic potential, uh, supposedly, but there were a few conditions within the um, uh, subsection 6 there, and that was subsection D. And that said that if there was no vaccine against or antiviral treatment available for it, then they could declare an emergency. And this was a, a Commonwealth emergency. Now, Jason... Cast your mind back to when they banned hydroxychloroquine. They took all of Clive Palmer's hydroxychloroquine. They banned yes. it. They took it. They confiscated it, didn't they? Yep. And then they also banned ivermectin, didn't they? Yes. And now, 
This ties what I say into subsection D, and I said, why did we ban those um, known treatments, yes, for that had been around for 20, 30, or decades? Let's, let's say decades. They'd been around for decades. Yep. They banned them, right? Now, what does that do? Well, that now allows the Commonwealth to create an emergency or declare an emergency, maybe the wrong wording there, let's say declare rather than construct or create. Mm. Okay. That gives them the power for the emergency. That then follows on down down the line. The states start declaring emergency. By the way, New South Wales never declared an emergency at any time, and we, we, we articulated that in the case of Kassam. But what ended up happening here was in the evidence that you'll see in my submission, I actually put forward doctors in America such as Dr. Brian Tyson. Now, Dr. Brian Tyson put forward 6,000 patient records, 3,000 vaccinated, 3,000 unvaccinated, all got sick despite the fact. <laughs> so we were saying the vaccine's not working, mm. okay? Well, not to the level of what we were, they were saying. And my submission pretty well states we put all our eggs in one basket. There were other treatments available. Dr. Brian Tyson comes out and says, well, here's the list of how I've been treating him in trauma centres Yes, in the USA successfully, okay? This was all pushed to the side. This is all really early on in the pandemic, remember? And this was all being pushed to the side. And so we were all wondering to ourselves, well, if we're putting all our eggs into one basket and we're throwing everything else to the side, but yet we've got people giving you evidence who are frontline treatment people, okay, and they're succeeding. They're actually treating people successfully, okay? Mm. Why is it that these drugs are being denied to the Australian population and what are the legal implications now knowing that they were banned? Who banned them? Why were they banned? Yes, especially when we had these people from overseas. Now, this is what we were grappling with at the time. Now, the expert at the time, uh, Professor Christine McCartney, we were talking about ivermectin. She actually prescribed ivermectin for scabies in, that, in her own practice, but she'd never treated a COVID patient. Mm. So how is it that someone who's never treated a COVID patient is taken up higher than others? And that was the issue that I'm bringing out in this COVID inquiry. We need to come down to understand how is it that these things were all pushed to the side? Because this is all solid science. Yes. Okay. This is what we were grappling with at the time. So my submission goes through that. It also talks about the PCR testing, and I've put on a German, you'll see the report of a German PCR expert, okay, who said the high rate of false positives coming out of PCRs is not indicative of a true case of COVID mm. because it's just picking up everything, which is, again, something we know. Um, and this, these are the things that we were pushing forward, and I've put that forward to say why is it that, external voices were being drowned out. And as the pandemic went on, more and more drowning out, people were being pushed to the side. And so this submission really goes towards the, the sense of, uh, well, there's a lot because there's three pages. So I had to cram a lot into that three pages. And I put on some good evidence uh, from some of the world's best experts um, they've got some really good statistics they've got some really good data especially one there from uh, dr michael palmer from canada he's an australian 
doctor, he was talking about mRNA therapies, the gene, the lipid nanoparticle. That's all stuff we're talking about now. Getting a, there's a lot of room coming around that now, isn't there? But we, we already articulated that in evidence and we told everyone this is what's happening. I find it absolutely extraordinary. I want to just circle back a little bit to alternate treatments because one of the things that really bugs me about it is that we knew that the experimental vaccine doesn't get let out if there are alternate treatments running around. And I'm just wondering if there's any way that we could get an admission in the conclusions that that was the reason why, or is this going to be obfuscated with some other deflective thing to say that there was no proven science, which we now know is not the case, whether they will cherry pick the science that they will therefore rely upon to give us a satisfactory answer. This is where this sneakiness comes into it. And that's the part, Tony, that I think you might be able to provide or shed a bit of light on. Well, I, I think what we've been working on, not just here, but internationally, um, I also talked to lawyers and doctors overseas, and what we've been working on internationally is the scope to which uh, journals may or may not have been compromised. Um, and in these journals, you've got some very, very good authors who are coming up with some solid science, but they're not being published. It goes, it goes somewhat to what you're saying, where... We know that these things have been going on for decades. They've been used in previous SARS outbreaks, which isn't, it is different to the present strain, but they had been used in previous strains. And why were they blocked here? Well, they were blocked because we were getting fake research coming out. And some of that fake research, such as the Lancet study, has mm. since then been recalled. Okay. But a lot was placed on that Lancet study as to say, that these, these alternative treatments weren't effective. Not only that, we also had these doctors with these protocols that were coming up. They were being attacked by various regulators. They were being deregistered. They were saying this is dangerous. But how are they dangerous if the people are surviving? How, yes. this, this is what we couldn't fathom. We couldn't yes. understand how you can get your 6,000. And that's why I submitted those 6,000 patient records. So I, I wanted the courts and I wanted everyone to understand these 3,000 of that 6,000 were actually vaccinated and they still got sick. Mm. That's telling you it's not doing its job, yet we locked down societies. People were thrown and cast out of work, police, firemen, ambulance, nurses, doctors, lawyers, you name it. You, we all know what the catastrophe was. It was. And I say it in my submission, it was an industrial relations pogrom, okay? We had people who were coming up to long service leave, turfed out. Great for an employer absolutely devastating for an employee who put their and a lot of people had put their heart and souls in their work and they did everything and there was no loyalty given to those people it's uh de devastating and look we have the um the idea that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were used as zinc ionophores, their, their sole job was to open the cell wall to allow zinc which is often under most people suffer a zinc deficiency, much like they do suffer a vitamin D deficiency, not just here in Australia, but all around the world. I mean, even in India, where people would be barefooted and 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 have their hands open and exposed to the hot weather and the sun, they have a gross vitamin D deficiency in that country. So it's just something that uh, is everywhere. But vitamin D, 
like zinc worked as part of this treatment um, uh, regime that was used by using a drug like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin to simply open the cell wall, allow the zinc inside the cell, which binds to the virus and stops replication, which ironically is not dissimilar to what a vaccine is supposed to do to create an antibody that that said antibody then discovers a virus when it enters the body, binds to the virus and stops it from replication. But it failed completely at doing that job. There was no way that this particular set of vaccines, any of them, stopped people from getting COVID. So this goes down the other pathway again, but it's the vilification of medicine without even understanding what it was even meant to do. Today, I saw, uh, as an aside, I saw on X, um, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. in an interview, and they were talking about the harms of remdesivir, and below it was one of the um, X versions of a fact check. It's a, it's a context thing, and they were saying that there was studies to show that remdesivir was working and that it wasn't unsafe, and they used one fact check and they use one um, particular uh, study. But when I actually went in and bothered to read what the study said, it said it was better to take remdesivir for five days than it was to take remdesivir for 10 days. So in other words, if you take too much of us, it's toxic, but if you take just the right amount, it's not. And they use that to justify that remdesivir was perfectly safe. Clearly, that was a furphy. Oh, Jason, I think the, the centre of what we're talking about here is this, we didn't engage, we weren't engaged in a proper medical model. Science was thrown out the door, okay? Proper medicine was thrown out the door. But not only thrown out the door, but it was all turned on its head because evidence-based medicine was no longer the case. Yes. And, and I say it for this reason, and it's in my submission, that Greg Hunt came out early on and said this is the world's biggest clinical trial. Yet at the same time, we had experts, ministers and you name it, coming out saying it's safe and effective. Yet all the contracts that we've read from all around the world have indicated that there were no representations as to the safety and effectiveness of this vaccine. So where were they getting this from? Secondly, it follows logically, okay, and it's a logical, it flows logically that if it's a clinical trial, you cannot make a claim of safe and effective until the trial's over. If you're making a claim of safe and effective, then you're preempting the results, meaning that it's potentially misleading and deceptive. Number two, I've been fighting the Department of Health now and, and putting in freedom of information now because there's, I think, 16 or 19 variations of the various pharmaceutical contracts in Australia. Now, one of the issues was it's against the public interest, but what they didn't realise is Early into, or sorry, mid 221, I actually put in a petition through Parliament and I've got 102,639 signatures that said we want to, we want the contracts released. I did not tell them this. It's just that I had it there. In addition to that, Greg Hunt, who was the minister at the time, because then I said, look, I'm having, you know, I'd like to get access to it. He goes, if you want access, you put in a Freedom of Information Act request and if that doesn't work, you go to NCAT. Well, I did that. The Department of Health keeps knocking me back. So despite our attempts for clarity, for transparency, because I think the Australian people, especially when it comes to public health, we want to know, was the science accurate? If the science wasn't accurate, then we need to work out exactly what this inquiry is going to come down to because then we need to say, well, why wasn't it accurate? What institutions were involved in diverting attention? We need to say, we need to look at all this sort of stuff. And so when we have a look at this logical progression, I actually called it a logical inversion. 
Mm. Okay, it's because everything was twisted on its head, and what we knew as true science became pseudoscience. Okay, overnight. Okay, and how did we know that? Well, we had some of the world's top experts. Uh, we had science, longitudinal science that had been going on for decades, even half a century, knowing about a certain drug. Look at hydroxychloroquine, as a classic example. And that was all being turned on its head. They were all being called conspiracy theorists. Doctors were being deregistered for saying so. If you made a, if you indicated that there was a risk, that doctor potentially facing deregistration. How do we know? Well, I've represented some of those doctors, so it's not a furphy. Yeah. So at the end of the day, this logical inversion actually captivated and sensationalised society. The point I'm trying to make here is this, is that the hypersensationalism and politics took over medicine yes. and it took over science and they were sitting at the gates and they battered down that door and now they're inside. Now that inquiry can't allow that to happen. We need to unpack everything. It needs to be a full, thorough, full and frank and it needs to open up. If we need to go into the institutions and open up those institutions and work out, which we know, there are executives who sat on pharmaceutical boards, now in different boards, controlling different areas. We need to get to the bottom of this because this is how we get to regulatory capture. Yeah, look, well said. Um, Tony, there's a lot that we could obviously talk about. We're going to take a break in a moment, because, we, but when we come back, I want to go down a different avenue, and that is of whistleblowers, of which you have a uh, background and training in. It's a huge subject. So what we'll do now is we'll take that break. You are watching Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. You know that the ladies of The View very rarely disappoint. If you're in the market for liberal fanaticism, check them out. Last week, Sarah Haynes, she was pontificating about how, well, if you believe that birth is a miracle and God's choice, there should be limitations on you, all in support of abortion. People aren't doing this lightly. Like, this is not something where they're sitting around engaging in this. Only 1% of abortions occur after 20 weeks. 93% occur in the first trimester. And I tend to think when people say, well, it's God's will, it's a miracle, it's life. If it's God's will on the way in, it should be God's will on the way out too. That brings into question, are you taking heart, heart attack medication? Are you treating your cancer? Are you dying when he said you should? Because if we're gonna argue about life in, let's be honest about life out. So is she saying that pro-life people People shouldn't seek medical help for themselves? Mm -hmm. Don't go to the hospital if you're hurting because it was God's will. Like, I don't like the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy when people weaponize religion. So if you believe that God determines who gets pregnant and that it's a miracle, you have no right to medical help. I told you they're out of their minds. And thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT Radio Vision. Military families often sacrifice precious time away from loved ones while serving our country. And for those with children, the separation can be especially difficult. We were worried that with him leaving, that she would lose those connections with her dad. Some of life's best moments happen between parents, children, and the pages of a good book. United Through Reading provides that connection. You can watch your mom or dad read a book to you, and it almost feels like they're really there. We ensure they remain a consistent, meaningful part of their children's lives, no matter the distance. Just seeing Jacob recognize Daddy again after a long time just melted my heart. And now, as we're facing greater isolation from our loved ones, 
United Through Reading is also available to veterans. Learn more about United Through Reading and download our free secure app at unitedthroughreading.org. The human mind is like a computer, no matter how efficient it may be. Its reliability is only as great as the information fed into it. That's a campaign promise. Tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. We mandate that the truth be told. You're hearing it. TNT. And we're back for the final segment of Weekends with Jason Olborn for this week, the 16th of December, as we head towards the very much wanted Christmas break. And I'm with Tony Nikolic for this final segment. And uh, I want to talk to you, Tony, about whistleblowers in particular, the man that was originally known as Winston Smith, named after the character from George Orwell's 1984. And he was the man that got hold of some data out of New Zealand and was then outed as Barry Young, who's now been... Well, he's been arrested, he's been released, but he brought out some information that was truly shocking. And it was the idea that certain batches given on certain days led to the deaths of clusters of people around about the same time. Almost impossible not to want to investigate what's going on. But of course, don't shoot the messenger has been inverted and you shoot the messenger. You would have thought this would have been the most important information ever released out of New Zealand, if not the world, for what Barry Young had discovered, Tony. Indeed. I, I think looking at what, what was discovered and the information that is uh, divulged, it's certainly something that does need to come to light. And the there is a very important role that whistleblowers play in our society and the role they play is essentially, and, and I use a metaphor, and as you know, I've published in whistleblowing before for many years now, and um, the issues with respect to whistleblowers, they have this role in society where they're effectively a deputy of the enforcement agencies and the community. We deputise them by de facto. They're a de facto deputy. If you remember those old Western movies where, you know, the sheriff would be chasing down some bandits and yes. what happens? Well, on the way through a town, they deputise these people. You're a deputy. I need to help. And that's essentially the way we should be looking mm. at whistleblowers. Now, you can look at Julian Assange and all these great people out there. They've, they've divulged information that was for the embitterment of society. Mm. And here we're seeing some data and that data is potentially so revealing is that it really ties into the narrative of what we've been talking about here is if it was a clinical trial, then it certainly makes sense that batches will be switched all around the world because that is the batch they're looking at how much mRNA or gene technology am I placing in each batch? Mm. And, okay, Australia's got this batch now and New Zealand has that one, Portugal, this one, Portugal. And remember, because if it's a double-blind trial, now we know it's a trial because the minister said it was. That's not a conspiracy. We know this is the case. And how the double-blind trials occur, well, no one knows where the batches are going and who's getting, you know, the sugar pill or whatever the placebo or whether there's a placebo, is it an inert one, what's happening? We don't know because that's the whole idea of a clinical trial. Now, it certainly makes sense that these batches, and they have been labelled death batches for some time, and I believe early on I, I did an interview with Mike Ryan in Asia Pacific, I think in early to or mid-2021, where we were talking about, like, uh, batches being transported everywhere in different places. And is that the case? Well, we don't know because at the time we were getting high death rates in Brazil. Well, can we now trace these, let's call them death batches, going around the world? So... 
the whistleblower in New Zealand coming up with this data really is the first hard evidence. Yes. Okay, we're talking hard evidence, okay? Yeah. Now, the what we need to do as a society is understand that despite the fact that we have, and this is this is the careful balancing act, that's why you really need to see lawyers before you go and blow the whistle or anything because we teach you, and whistleblowing lawyers and, you know, lawyers with experience in whistleblowing, this is what you need. We don't want to go to a property lawyer or a conveyancer because we never know what we're going to get. And that happens everywhere. You don't want to go to a whistleblowing lawyer to do a conveyance, okay? It's just just the way it works. But at the end of the day, what you need to do is there's a careful balancing act. On one side, we have proprietal interests of a company, okay? It, it's unfair for someone to walk in, take a USB and run with it. In that sense, that you know, let, let's be fair, that, that person has that. On the other side... If there is a crime being committed or there's wrongdoing or there's a significant threat to national security, public health or harm to the community, well, that should justify and override your proprietary interest in protecting that data, okay? And in this instance, if that hard evidence does come up and if it is verified, and I say if it is verified, then he should be a national hero and there's nothing short of that. No, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. It was just a point you just picked up just then. I, I want to go down the pathway of the term vaccine hesitancy. This was the excuse that uh, then Minister Alex Hawke used to um, uh, to prevent uh, Novak Djokovic from playing the Australian Open. He said it's not that he's unvaccinated uh, per se, it's that he would encourage vaccine hesitancy. It's that excuse again that even we're going down this pathway that I feel like they're going to again rely on such terms to say that we, we, we don't want these whistles blowers because they're going to encourage vaccine hesitancy. Well, wouldn't you want to be hesitant if this thing is going out and creating so-called death batches? How do they even justify such an argument? Again, here's another logical inversion with semantics involved. And, and the reason I say that is that the term vaccine hesitancy, remember, it, it's a social construct. It's not mm. something that has just occurred. It's something that they've created to create a guilt trip on those who don't want to take a vaccine. Let me just say this. I'm not vaccine hesitant. I'll tell you, I just don't want the vaccine. <laughs> I'm allowed to be, whether they, they can term it whatever they want. If you don't want a vaccine and someone says, I'm not taking that vaccine, and let me just say it again, I'm not taking that vaccine, okay? Why? Because I don't have enough science behind it. It's very clear it's in a clinical trial. We don't know what it is. The survivability rate, again, it's in my submissions, 99.5%, and that was for the 70-plus, mm. okay? 99.5% of people, 70-plus are going to survive. The younger you went, the more the survival rate went up. Why would you need this vaccine and why would you want to lock down society? But here's the cracker. If these death batches were out, knowing that the survivability rate was 99.5 for 70-plus, and yet we got young people dying of myocarditis, pericarditis, and all these other conditions. I also have people in my firm who we're representing who very young people, 32, 34, or whatever they are, and they are experiencing very serious side effects, very healthy people, very, very good at what they did, and now they're in wheelchairs, okay? So if this data comes out, and again, I say this, and it's in my whistleblower, if it affects national security, public health, 
um, issues to do with the economy. We need to address them, and they should not be the subject of a criminal investigation. They should be protected, just like a, just like in a witness protection program. And indeed, many laws around the world, whether we look at the False Claims Act in the USA, 3729 and 3733 of the US Code, they have an anti-retaliation provision. The Australian various public interest disclosure acts have anti-retaliation provisions in there. You should not retaliate. It's that simple. But again, as long as the whistleblower can justify the reasons as to why it occurred. Now, if you're going out there for personal gain, it's very different, mm. okay? It's very different. But if you have a look at what he did in New Zealand, you look at what Julian Assange did during what he did. You look at Brooke Jackson. She's an absolute legend, what she's done over in the USA. Incredible what she's doing. Uh, we need to support these people because they are the ones who are the deputies who are now not just the deputies, they are now the sheriffs, okay? That's yes. how good they've become. Yes. Yes. Well, our very own David McBride here on TNT Radio has pled guilty in uh, in a court and is going to wait uh, what happens to him in terms of releasing uh, military information that showed that the Australian, gov uh, Australian military was guilty of crimes against humanity in Afghanistan. I mean, at what point do you have to say we made a bigger mistake than the deputy, as you've explained, uh, who's brought this to our attention? It just seems that um, if, if the government, who seems to be the the big loser in any of these whistleblowers is set to have a setback or be embarrassed, disgraced, or has to act upon something. They'll do whatever it takes to uh, to, to to cover it up. And people, Tony, are sick and tired of cover up after cover up after cover up. And it seems that these whistleblowers, regardless of knowing their fate, Barry Young in New Zealand, you know, he's he's sat in a prison cell. He's he's going through this particular thing. He he's facing some enormous. Uh, prison sentence for what was some pretty uh, anemic charge of being dishonest with public information, which he's not being dishonest with. It almost seems like that when he gets to court, the court will be the one to be embarrassed unless they're going to work out another way to invert that information. How does a man like Barry Young even, even have to face the idea of with the information that he's got that he may even end up in jail? It just seems impossible that that could be the case. Unfortunately, we go back to what I was saying with those logical inversions. What we've seen is we're seeing a higher premium placed on concealment rather than public transparency. And the only people that can affect that or change that is part of various parliaments or Congress in the USA. Now, I've also put a, a what we call a draft bill. I gave it to a lot of the independent senators. I haven't heard anything back, but it's a whistleblower provision. Now, back in 2012 with the ANU, I was working with the late Professor Fawns of the Faculty of Law and Medicine in the uh, book that I, book chapter that I wrote in conjunction with him, and that was a global fraud uh, whistleblower book, and it had to do with, believe it or not, pharmaceutical frauds. Uh, yeah, so we had national uh, security defence and also climate. So these are the issues we covered back then. But when it comes to these uh, whistleblowers, whether it's here or whether around the world, I encourage you, go and see a lawyer because the lawyer who knows this stuff will help you get it out. Now, when it comes down to our friend over there in New Zealand, I think with some clever legal manoeuvring, it can't be dishonest, okay, if his intention is for the public safety Okay, and that public safety, we can tie batch, let's let's make it up, one, two, three, four, to the death 
of Mr. or Mrs. Jones, okay? But then we go one, two, three, four, five, six, there's now death here. So those batches, if they go there, then, yeah, I think there's going to be a real big problem for those who are trying to prosecute him because that's, remember, the anti-retaliation. I, I think we need to look at these anti-retaliation provisions. The thing that we're working on right now um, here in Australia is to strengthen the whistleblower provisions. This is what we need. We need to strengthen them. We need to protect whistleblowers. We need them to come forward and we need uh, the Australian Parliament to come up and start making some real laws and we need senators standing up protecting these whistleblowers. Yeah, look, well said. Do you think that uh, with in Barry Young's case uh, versus perhaps the COVID inquiry here in Australia, um, that Barry Young can do more for the cause, for bringing truth to the surface through the pathway that he's taken than perhaps the COVID inquiry ever really will, given the parameters uh, and the protections around each of them? Well, what, what, one of the biggest issues we've had with respect to Australia is the lack of information coming to the public. What Barry's done over there has circumvented a lot of that. And so what you're seeing is here in Australia saying, well, you don't have the evidence, you don't have this, you don't have that. Well, you'll see in my submission, I actually submitted a coronial, a forensic pathologist coronial report that said this gentleman took Pfizer and died soon after it. It, it says it in the forensic pathologist report. But they were gaslighted. And so when they're saying evidence, these are the issues. Now, in the Senate, we had some really good people. We had uh, Alex Antich, Gerard Rennick, uh, Matt Canavan, and uh, Senator Roberts, and, and many more who have come through. And then we've got uh, Ralph Babbitt doing it as well. Look, they're asking questions. Okay, okay, this is the evidence we have. We have doctors reporting deaths or, you know, soon after. We're saying suspected. We're not saying it is the cause, but we're saying soon after, but yet the TGA then downgrades that doctor's report. So how is it that a primary doctor can... This is the evidence that goes missing, hence why whistleblowers are so important in society because we need these whistleblowers. Right now, our whistleblower laws are in name only. They are informed. If you no. try and do something, you're gone. You're exactly right. And according to official data out of New Zealand, there's only been four COVID deaths caused by a vaccine. And here in Australia, I believe it's something anemic like 11. And I think all of them are attributed to AstraZeneca and Pfizer's gotten off scot-free in this country. Whereas I would assume that those four deaths in New Zealand would have been to a Pfizer jab. It just seems illogical that they can prevent these numbers to be so low. At the same time, what would be the interest of the government to go down that pathway and 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 completely smother and cover up the deaths or at least look into them and then decide by committee whether or not um, uh, blame can be attributed to said vaccines. It just does not make any sense. And so now we're hoping that, of course, what we've seen here with Barry Young, that this, this does come to the fore through one court case or another, or even, in fact, if they just hold it up and decide to dismiss the charge uh, would be another strategy that we haven't even uh, thought of, would be another way of trying to get him to go away if they realise that they're in more trouble than you would have thought. But um, that's another interesting situation. Just a quick 30 seconds for a response to that one. Well, the way I see it is this. When you have uh, Caesar in control, uh, this inquiry, if I could put it, and I think I've said it before, you've got to go to Caesar to ask Caesar to investigate Caesar. Now, let me tell you, have one guess. What is Caesar's response? 
<laughs> Caesar is the good person, and the rest of you, we don't like you anymore. It's isn't it amazing that that and and then Tony, that is a coin, uh, a phrase that you've coined, and I have um, you have used it before in the past, and I appreciate that you used it again uh, to 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 summarise or to sum up the conversation that we've had today. We have hit the uh, the time limit for our show. I just want to thank you again, not just for today, but for all your support uh, here for my show as shows, and of course for all of TNT Radio and the marvelous work that you have consistently done over and over over a very long period of time in service to the people of Australia and the people of the world. There can be no higher honour, Tony, for the great work that you have done. I wish you and your family a wonderful Christmas and New Year and I look forward to speaking with you again in the new year and hopefully we'll have big smiles on our faces because great things are happening. Well, that concludes Weekends with Jason Olborn for this week. We've got more coming up for you after the news break, but this is me signing off for the week. I'll see you all on Monday on Compass from 1pm Brisbane time here on TNT Radio.